Welcome to Taking Ship, a guided cruise through dumbest timeline America. I'm Frank Spring, and with me is Ellie Jacobs, recent finalist for the job of head football coach at the University of Tennessee. Good morning, Ellie. Good morning, Frank. Uh, much like our president, I needed to turn that down because, uh, you know, the photographs and the tax audit would have really put, put a pinch on me. Um, it's always great to be with you. Um, great to uh, We're grateful to our listeners, uh, many more over the last week after our, our good interview with Chris Liu. And uh, people should definitely subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Uh, you really do want to subscribe because we've got a good slew of guests coming up um, over the next couple of weeks into the new year. Um, we want to uh, urge you to follow us on Twitter at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in paleontologist. Yes. And now we, we have no guests. We turn uh, this week. It is us discussing uh, the issues of the day. And we turn uh, to uh, an issue that's uh, very prominent, very much on, on our minds. Uh, that is the uh, movement of the American embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and the essential and the uh, official recognition by the United States of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. So, Ellie, why is this a big deal to either side? Right. So it's a big deal and it's not a big deal. Um, I think kind of an important thing that's sort of getting lost in a lot of this is um, symbolism is a really big deal. Um, and we'll get into that in a second. But what this does really doesn't change any actual true policy. What it does is recognize the reality that was on the ground. The reality on the ground, which is something that you know military people say all the time, diplomats say all the time, is that Israel has recognized Jerusalem as its capital since its fund, founding in, in 1948. And, you know, for thousands of years before that, it was, it was the Jewish capital. Um, the Supreme Court, the prime minister's office, all the ministry ministries, the Knesset, the president's office um, is all in Jerusalem. The only major um, government function that's uh, not directly in Israel is the military, which is in Tel Aviv. And that's in the Kirya, which is the equivalent of the, Pentagon. Um, and, you know, the 25 minutes you can make from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv is about how long it takes you to get from downtown DC to the Pentagon. So, you know, it's about the same thing. On a good day. On a good day. Um, but it's important um, because uh, no, no, since the, you know, uh, late 60s, after the Six Day War, when Israel reclaimed, uh, reconquered, um, East Jerusalem from the Jordanians after the Jordanians, Syrians, and Egyptians attacked Israel and Israel miraculously over six days beat them back and conquered the Sinai, Gaza, the Golan Heights, and the West Bank. Um, every country pulled uh, whatever embassies existed in, in Jerusalem, which weren't many, but several countries did have. I think Ecuador was the last one to leave uh, out of Jerusalem because the uh, sort of international agreement that Jerusalem, the final status of Jerusalem would be decided um, on the final agreement peace agreement between the Israelis and the Palestinians or Israelis and, the Arab, and their Arab neighbors. Um, that obviously has been a long time in coming. Um, in 1995, uh, Congress and on a huge bipartisan majority and uh, President Clinton signed into law the Jerusalem uh, Move Embassy Act, whatever it was in 1995, which essentially said that the President of the United States had to direct the State Department to move the embassy from Tel Aviv from its cliffside, beautiful home on the beach in Tel Aviv to Jerusalem 
or the drastic funds of diplomacy would be cut. I mean, like half the diplomatic corps funding would be cut or something like that if this didn't happen. However, there was a clause put into the into the bill that every that on a six month basis, the president could waive the responsibility of moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem if the president deemed it um, not in the in, in the national security interest of the United States to not move the embassy. And for every six months, including and up until yesterday, uh, every president has signed this waiver every six months. Uh, ironically, immediately after Donald Trump announced that he was recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and saying to move the embassy, he then signed the waiver. That's what he signed at the desk immediately after. That's what he held up to the cameras and signed. It was, you know, beautiful <laughs> irony. And so I hereby, I hereby declare a thing that I will now immediately subvert. Yeah, and it's a pretty classic Donald Trump. I mean, it's kind of, you know, quarter loaf. This is how he does things. Um, so in the, the symbolism for the Palestinians uh, is primarily they um, believe Jerusalem to be their ca the capital of their future state, or at least East Jerusalem to be that. And they feel that this um, creates a, uh, an issue where that might not be possible anymore. Uh, and very importantly, two really important things that Donald Trump said yesterday that he has not said in the past, um, and these were the two things that I was really listening for and, and heard, was one, uh, he has never said the the two-state solution is something as a possibility. He's never even said the words two-state solution. He, uh, he very famously in February in a um, news conference with Netanyahu said, um, I like whatever deal both sides agree to. One state's two states, I don't care. Um, any thinking person um, recognizes that particularly if the idea is that Israel will make peace with its Arab neighbors and everybody will be hukunu matara, it will be awesome. Uh, Two-state solution is the only possibility. It's also the only possibility demographically for Israel to remain either a democratic state or a Jewish state. And that's a really important factor that a lot of people on the right just tend to ignore. Um, they come up with other numbers that don't really support their theories. But basically the idea is if it become if a one state solution is what you go for and the Palestinians are now accepted as citizens of Israel, um, demographically, they will overtake the Jewish population pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, so either it becomes a not Jewish state, uh, meaning that you could have a Palestinian prime minister, or it becomes an undemocratic state because the Israelis will, you know, you could be looking at true apartheid, which is not what exists now, but that could happen. Sure. This is not a country that was founded with the intention of creating a latter-day South Africa. And, right. and yet the, the possibility is definitely on the table. Right. So the Palestinians see that as, you know, more likely now. But Trump now yesterday saying, you know, two states is something he's much more open to. And more importantly, uh, particularly when it comes to Jerusalem, uh, he did not say, um, as apparently uh, Chuck Schumer told the Weekly Standard, he told Trump to say that Jerusalem was the undivided capital of Israel. Uh, Trump actually said that the lines of, is, of Jerusalem will be figured out later on. Um, and Jerusalem, uh, in terms of, you know, settlement developments and where the green line is and, you know, the future state of Palestine and contiguous, not contiguous, um, something people really lose sight of is, yeah, there's, you know, 600,000 settlers, something like that in the quote unquote, uh, occupied territories. Uh, 80% of those settlers live in what's, uh, the greater Jerusalem area. You know, Jerusalem was split. Uh, there was literally a green line drawn in 1948. That's why it's called the green line. The map had a green marker used for it. 80% of that 600,000 lives in the greater, what will be the greater Jerusalem area in the future. And this is where land swaps come in, where, you know, the idea is that, Oh, okay, well, you know, is, Israel will compensate the 2% of land of the West Bank they're taking with giving 2% of Israel somewhere else, just not in the Jerusalem area. So um, the Palestinians are now, now feel that, you know, none of that's going to happen and they're never going to have a capital in East Jerusalem. And then there's this, you know, 
this uh, um, puts you know uh, tips the scales in the, in the favor of the Israelis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. For the Israelis, um, uh, I mean, we can talk about the symbolism of it. Yeah, I mean, it seems like functionally, this there is you know to your to your to an earlier point that you made. There is not a lot mechanically that is going to change in the short term because of this. I mean, not not at all for the Israeli state. Uh, and I mean, it's business as usual there as far as that goes. And and not that much for America. Actually, it's not going to change how we do business, particularly because no. you know, we'll just swap out the consulate for the uh, uh, for the embassy. So the you know the the embassy moves from Tel Aviv uh, to Jerusalem. The consulate moves from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv. They're twenty five minutes apart. Functionally, this doesn't really make this. This is not mechanically that big a difference. The entire difference, and it's a relevant one, is the symbolism of it. Yeah, and the symbolism is obviously obviously huge, and in, particularly in the Middle East, it plays it plays a you know monumental role. So for the Israelis, they look at it and say Jerusalem was our capital for you know during the first and second Commonwealths of the biblical period that ended um, in seventy CE when the Romans conquered um, Israel and destroyed the temple, um, or destroyed the temple. They had already sort of conquered Judea. And the Palestinians then look at basically the time period of the Ottoman rule into now as the, you know, their historical time period. I mean, really starting with uh, when um, the Dome of the Rock was built in 600, something like that, I think. So symbolically, it's really important. I mean, you don't really have to look much further in terms of the symbolism that when in uh, a couple months ago, uh, there was a, a Palestinian gunman who killed a few Israeli police officers on the Temple Mount. Uh, because even though um, the Temple Mount is functionally governed by Jordan, um, the security is still provided by the Israelis. And uh, the security is, there aren't, there had not been metal detectors, there really hadn't even been many cameras, that kind of thing. Uh, and this Palestinian gunman killed three Israeli, three Israeli police officers. So the Israelis decided, hey, maybe we should put up some metal detectors to protect not just the soldiers, but other Palestinians. Um, and there were massive riots over this. And this is, you know, again, it's pretty symbolic to just have to walk through a metal detector. It really doesn't slow you down. It doesn't hurt you too much. But the symbolism of, oh, now I'm being, you know, now the Palestinians feel that the Israelis are oppressing them on one more thing uh, is symbolically a really big deal. And uh, I mean, so what has happened with the, the Trump administration on this and Trump himself? This seems so you're, you're, you're proposing something that mechanically doesn't have that much effect. That has an enormous symbolic effect that is... That, that would seem to, at the best case scenario, delay and potentially significantly destabilize whatever peace process may or may not occur in the near future. Uh, we hope, you know, we one would hope in the near future, and at the same time, uh, make noises about wrecking about the potential for a two-state solution, which has never been done before, and also preclude the very by this. Recognize Jerusalem, but refuse to but refuse to uh, to talk about a unified Jerusalem as the capital of uh, of Israel, but would also seem to preclude the very condition that would make that for the Palestinians that would make that peace process possible. This whole thing seems. I mean, the word is incoherent. More than anything, this seems like an incredibly this just this does not look like the result of a coherent thought process with specific respect to Israel, and it looks really incoherent with respect to whatever policy this administration is pursuing toward the Middle East. Yeah, I mean, this is dumbest timeline America. Did you expect Donald Trump to vomit something up that was coherent? Sure. Oh, this, uh, that's entirely it. I was, I was not looking for that. I was not looking to this man or any of his uh, or any of his cohorts for 
you know, tight, closely reasoned analysis of it or, you know, or solutions to a problem that has defied humanity basically since it started. Yeah. Um, but this is particularly, I, I, you know, I tell you, I, I, you know, I'll tell you what it is. It's, it is not just the incoherence. We're all used to that. Um, and, in, <laughs> and indeed, it's become one of our favorite features because if it's incoherent, at least it's not uh, effectively malicious. Right. And it's not just the policy that was incoherent. The last minute and a half of his statement yesterday was incoherent once his dentures loosened, his or dentures as off. the White House said, he was suffering from dry mouth. Was suffering from dry I mean, who amongst us hasn't suffered from dry mouth so severely that they became effectively unintelligible? I mean, it was, it's, it's ludicrous because as we saw with his tiny, tiny little hands two weeks ago, he did have dry mouth and picked up his little water bottle and chugged from it. And yeah. that, that's what dry mouth sounds like. What he sounded like in the last two minutes of this statement yesterday is what you sound like when you have a problem with your dentures, when you're drunk, when you're mm-hmm. high, or you're having a stroke. Or you're having a stroke, which is, which is exactly what prompted this entire conspiracy theory uh, because his, his he, he also he also signed his executive order, which again was not the recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, but rather the rather the kind of the opposite, really, yeah, functionally the opposite. And he signed it a little more broadly and a little more haste than he usually does. And as a result, his signature looked similar but different. And so there was this entire thing going around on Twitter yesterday that the president had had a stroke in the middle of his speech. And, uh, you know, and that, that, that his slurring and that his, uh, his hand, handwriting, which are incidentally, which, I mean, really are two indicators of a stroke. If your speech significantly changes and if your handwriting begins to alter, those are both, those are both indicators. But what clearly happened is, I mean, his signature wasn't that different. And he clearly, his dentures were just like, just, just spinning around in his mouth like something, you know, like clothes in a washing machine. Yeah. And, you know, rather than this White House just saying he was having problems with his dentures. Honestly, they will they will start a war with someone on a lie rather than admit that the president of the United yeah. States wears dentures. Like they're just not like the man is way too vain for that. They'll just be like, "This was a plot. This is an assassination plot by the North Koreans." Yeah, and you know, bombing commences in five minutes. Like that. Like they will go that far before yeah. they will. The president of the United States wears dentures around tiny hands. Yeah, I mean, you remember when um, uh, George Bush um, was choking on a pretzel and fell and uh, banged his head and had a, a cut or a black eye or something like that? Yeah, yeah. And that's what the White House said, that he choked on a pretzel and he fell. And everybody's like, no, 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 no. Something much more nefarious must have happened because that's just ludicrously stupid. Yeah, that's right. And I, who would have thought that the time that the president of the United States almost choked to death on a pretzel and they had the courage to admit it would have been right. would, like would be you know would be looked back as like a halcyon day of transparency in American democracy. Yeah, I mean, you look at these things and like what the, we talk about. This is not normal, right? And it, it's things that are that are even this small. You know, when when uh, George H. W. Bush uh, vomited on the prime minister of of Japan. They could have come up and said, oh, the North Koreans poisoned his food or something. I said, no, he was sick. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there, there's, like, this isn't a country where we have a monarch. It's not, you know, you don't have to pretend the queen doesn't take a shit. Like, that's exactly, yeah, that's, that's precisely it. There's no, I mean, that, that, that is exactly it. The, and it's weird because, and, and I hadn't really realized that until the Trump administration. One of the things that happens, you sort of go back and forth with some of my British friends, attempt sort of attempting to attempt to get their head around the way the president is viewed in this country. It is a very weird thing to have your head of government also be your head of state. So, you know, someone who is, you know, responsible for all the fuckery of government. And I mean that in the kindest possible way. And I include, you know, and I think any of my, you know, any of my, I've, I've worked in government and my friends who have worked in government as well, 
know that government involves an enormous amount of just clown show. Like, there's no yeah. way to attempt to govern human affairs without it, you know, turning into the stuff of farce, even at its very, very best. Yeah. And so, when the head of government who was responsible for, you know, for this entire clown show is again, the, even in the best regulated countries, I mean, you know, Switzerland has clown shows for God's sake. Like, that's just what yep. you get are. Uh, head of government is all, you know, is responsible for that, but in America is also meant to be sort of inoculated against certain types of attack because they also represent this kind of like weird semi-holy state of the state itself, right? Whereas in the, whereas in most countries, I mean, many countries, the state and government are different. Sometimes they're both elected. Ireland has, has an elected head of state and elected head of government. And in Britain, they have a hereditary head of state, the queen, who again, we have to pretend certain things about. And so whenever, and now, as long as we're talking about the heads of state and their humanity, this is one of my favorite cottage industries is discovery, discovering things about the queen that humanize her. Every time someone <laughs> finds out something about the queen that is sort of normal or funny or human, everyone reacts with delight, including to my sort of, to my chagrin and dismay, me. At the time, <laughs> there, was a, there was a revelation that she once told someone that her favorite song is Dancing Queen by ABBA. That is awesome. That's fantastic. Of course, why wouldn't it be? You know, yeah, I mean, that's wonderful. Right. So like you get, and, and we are denied all of that in this country, but, but it's, but it is not a particular, because the, you know, I mean, the president of the United States, the head of state, like there is a little bit of sanctimonious West winging about like, you know, Oh, the, you know, the, the hallow, you know, the, you know, the hallowed office of the presidency. I'm like, man, Andrew Jackson got in that office. Like Millard Fillmore sat in that chair, dude. Like, let's not go nuts about, you know, the sacred office of the presidency of the United States, at least too much. Uh, but at least we have never attempt, at least rarely attempted to pretend that the president is somehow some sort of, a perfect figure. Right. And that ex until now, until the president of the United States cannot even be allowed to wear dentures. Right. Perhaps the most flawed person to ever hold the office is now being vaunted as the most perfect person to ever hold the office. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, that's exactly right. It is just, I mean, this, like this is, Oh God. I mean, this really is, this is the absolute stuff of dumbest timeline America. Yeah. I, I mean, there was a cripple in the white house for the better part of a decade and a half. God damn. God damn it, Elliot. <laughs> it's, yeah, yes, there was, there was a, yes, that it is true. Uh, but, but that being said, there was yeah. some level of um, complicity by the government at large and the press corps and the country at large to sort of just ignore that for the better of the country. Because, yeah, yes, he's a man in the white, he's a man in a wheelchair, but who cares? He's capable of doing of executing yeah. the job. Yeah. They certainly didn't call him something as outrageous as that. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, the idea was they were, um, but yeah, I mean, they, you know, they, there have been presidents with certainly enormous character flaws and there have been presidents with, you know, physical ailments of one type or another. Uh, yeah. and as you say, in the case of Franklin Roosevelt, a quite, quite serious one. Right. Um, which he yeah. really couldn't hide. Whereas we know now just how ill John Kennedy was. Sure. No, yeah, that was kept, um, and, that was kept, you know, but, the, but, but going back to sort of this idea, uh, this halcyon idea of the president as a perfect human being, they worked really hard for that image. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, and, and they, they particularly hid that kind of things. I mean, when, when Bill Clinton fell down the stairs in Greg Norman's house in Florida and tore his ACL, they said, yeah, that's what happened. Yeah, this is exactly it, right? There, and there are certain, so to a certain degree, the president has been protected against some things. Uh, you know, long-term debilitating uh, health stuff like the stuff that Kennedy had is, has, you know, there have been times when that sort of thing has been kept secret. I mean, Woodrow Wilson had very significant health, uh, health problems yeah. that were, his wife, that were was, kept his wife was essentially running the government. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a period when Woodrow Wilson's doctor ran the government for a stretch there. Yeah, and the best not? part of it is that there was when building contingency plans around what would happen if something occurred with Franklin Roosevelt, it was seriously talked about bringing that guy back. And it's like, well, Woodrow Wilson's doctor, he's done it once before. <laughs> Let's let him do it again. Yeah, there was, a, there, was a great, there was a great article in, I think it was BuzzFeed. It was like a very scholarly article looking at the history of the development of the 25th Amendment and then, and then mm-hmm. the, uh, why it was necessary. And it kind of looked at the Wilson stuff and the Roosevelt stuff. And, you know, Truman walked into office not even knowing that there was an atomic program. Like, sure. He didn't know what was going on in, in, in Japan. Um, but, it, it, you know, we're now at a position where in dumbest timeline America, there is this belief that, I mean, he's the TV show president. The hair has to be perfect. The tan has to be perfect. The wife has to be perfect. The, like, yeah. even if his wife designs the White House Christmas hallway to, I think our, our friend Jason Stan, Stanford said it well, or retweeted somebody, uh, the, retweeted somebody well, the Commodore essentially said uh, it was the upside down. Yeah, yeah, that's, that, that's, a, that's a good call. That's a good call. Yeah. It did suggest to me the original uh, Germanic uh, version of a, l- a large number of fairy tales. Yeah, yeah, you could see Hansel and Gretel getting their ass kicked in that, yeah. Yeah, so that's exactly what you, which is how that story goes. They're, they're walking through the woods, they're tempted into a gingerbread house, and the witch just kicks their ass. <laughs> Does it get any worse than that? But, oh, boy. Wait, how did you... I'm picturing the witch is Ric Flair. Which is just, <laughs> Wait, how did your parents tell you that story? <laughs> <laughs> and with her like jumping off of a ladder, and, like, <laughs> putting down the people's elbow and a couple of kids. Did the witch not use um, a two by four? Oh man, this, uh, you know, someone, someone get me, uh, get me $500,000. Get me Yui Bull. Uh, we can, we'll get a script ready. We'll get this thing shot in Bulgaria. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be fantastic. And I think we just went on our most bizarre tangent ever. Yeah. So Israel, a tangent from a tangent from a tangent. That was, that was fantastic. Um, you know, I I think that there are a lot of questions that, um, we can speculate about when it comes to this. Um, and again, I personally applaud the president's decision and, and, and I'm holding back my, you know, my gag reflex to say that about Donald Trump, but, um, Look, he recognized a reality on the ground that is symbolically incredibly important to the Israelis. And uh, I think it was Eli Lake um, made a really good point in his column about this yesterday. That, um, And also, not just symbolically, but diplomatically, it was really important to kind of declare once and for all to the Arab world, um, and particularly the Palestinians, that Israel isn't going anywhere. Um, you're not going to have a capital o- over all of Jerusalem. Uh, you're going to have to negotiate all this kind of stuff. You're not getting everything you want. And all these deals that you've turned down over the last 20 years, which apparently are th- you know, they, have, they have reportedly uh, between the Camp David Accords um, and uh, Olmert's offer and a, uh, um, a, a, an additional offer, uh, turned down at least three comprehensive peace deals uh, that would have given them you know, sovereignty over East Jerusalem, 98% of the West Bank or something like that. Um, and a whole bunch of other things, and they've turned it down three times. Um, so for Trump to declare once and for all that this is what the reality is, Eli Lake made the interesting point that everybody kicked and screamed for years uh, that that Obama was being rough on the Israelis, when in reality we see that really Obama was just telling the Israelis things that they didn't want to hear that everybody recognized as reality, particularly the demographic issue that we were just talking about. Um, and now it's the Palestinians' turn to hear some really difficult truths. And that's what Trump's doing. 
I, I, I take your point. I, 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 I can see, I can see that view. I, I can't go there with you. And here's why. I think it's it's pretty clear, and and I mean, no one thinks this is going to end the peace process, right? Like this is, you know, I mean, you you yourself made the point when we were talking about this beforehand. The peace process is going to start up again at some point. There's there's going to be some turmoil in the in the interregnum, and then there will be a new set of talks, and maybe they will lead somewhere in the near future. Maybe they won't. Uh, this will delay the restart of that at some point, and I mean, this will delay this. You know, this will do this destabilize the process, delays the process. And in the meantime, there will be real consequences, including people dying who who need not have. Uh, as a result, I, I, I told my parents to stay. My parents live in Jerusalem, as we've said before on this. I told them to stay indoors yesterday, yeah. and it, that seems like a very high price to pay for for what is essentially a symbolic. Project. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more with that. That you know, that's all directly on target. But uh, you know, talking about some of these 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 questions that we really don't have uh, answers to yet, and we may never get answers to them. Um, the first and foremost one is talking about like where does this fall in the you know, Jared Kushner and Jason Greenblatt have been um, off doing research in the Middle East, talking to all the countries, uh, talking to all the experts, trying to come up with a comprehensive peace idea to present to the two sides to then sign on to, not sign on to, whatever it may be. Everybody kind of knows what this is going to look like, you know, just because Trump is saying we're reimagining or whatever the fuck he said yesterday, you know, taking a new look at everything. It's going to look essentially the way that every, every opportunity has looked since 96. Um, but the big question is really, uh, which is basically along the lines of what the Arab League proposed in 2002, which was, um, you know, they want, you know, to go back to the 1967 lines, which is in no way, shape or form ever going to happen. There will be land swaps of some kind. What we're seeing now is that the Trump administration is trying this um, outside in approach where the idea is that the Israelis, because of the Iran deal and other things are in much closer ties more publicly with their Sunni neighbors than they have been in previous years. The idea is, is that maybe we can get the Israelis to be more buddy, buddy with the Sunni leaders and the Sunni countries who will then in turn pressure the Palestinians into cutting a deal. Um, in 2000, when Arafat turned down the deal that Barack offered him, uh, the end of 2000 into just a few days before Bill Clinton left office, uh, Clinton was pressuring the Saudi king to pressure Arafat to take the deal. So clearly the Saudis have tremendous power here. Um, and this is, and getting back to the questions that I think we're, that need to get at, that uh, people should be considering. Uh, we know that uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, the 32 year old crown prince that Frankie talked, spoke about a little bit last week about Tom Friedman, um, genuflecting over, um, and Tom Friedman is only now beginning to suspect that some of the people he may have met on that trip weren't really officially licensed wallet inspectors at all. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but MBS and uh, Jared Kushner apparently struck up some kind of uh, uh, romance, I guess. I don't know. That's not the right word. It's the world's worst buddy comedy. Yeah, world's worst buddy comedy. That's probably better. Yeah, world's worst buddy comedy. Hashtag world's worst buddy comedy. That's a really long hashtag. Um, and uh, um, the Saudis publicly said, you know, this cannot stand. We, this is terrible. This is the worst thing in the world. But I can't believe that Kushner and MBS didn't discuss this, that there wasn't some kind of wink and nod from the Saudis that, you know, this is okay. Um, because there's also, there was reporting um, uh, last month um, in several different places. So, you know, I'm not saying it was just the intercept, um, but multiple outlets were reporting that uh, Mohammed bin Salman um, hauled uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority, to Riyadh and basically read him the riot act. 
and said, look, the Trump administration is going to roll out the peace plan and you are going to accept it. And if you don't, you have to resign. And if you accept it, we're going to give the Palestinians as much money as they need to make sure that you can get a state up and running. And we're going to give you a lot of money because you're a kleptocrat and you like money. Um, and that, that, that was reported, the Saudis deny it, the Palestinians deny it, but it was reported widely enough to think that something not necessarily that on the nose took place. Um, so the, one of my primary questions yesterday is what are the, what are the Saudis up to? What game are they playing friends? Um, what's your game friendo? Yeah. The essential so, question that we ask on taking ship of just everyone, just everyone we, or that we talk about, you know, always a little side eye. What's your game? Yeah. What are you up to? So that, that's my, that's like my primary question. Um, then there's secondary questions, you know, what was Trump's, um, impetus for doing this now? So one is, as we saw with the Iran deal and his speech about that is that he doesn't like being on deadline to do things. And if you tell Donald Trump not to do something, you can be damn sure he's going to do it. Tell him not to grow up women or grab a woman by the pussy. He's going to go do that. Like that's who Donald Trump is. We know that. Tell him not to lose his dentures during the middle of a speech to the entire world. He's going to lose his dentures during a speech to the entire world. So the impetus could have just anyone explicitly told him not to do that. (laughs) And maybe they should have. Well, maybe they didn't explicitly tell him, but I think it was implied. It's there, it's there, it's there, it's there in his TikTok for the day. Yeah. <laughs> Don't lose your dentures. Right. I mean, like, whose job was it to polygrip his dentures in? Like, what advanced guy fucked that up? <laughs> it's, God, it's poor Hope Hicks again. You know that, like, whatever Hope Hicks is just getting... Where, whatever happens to her, like, however far up in the hierarchy she rises, she still has to, like, press his pants and, like, yeah. secure his dentures. Brutal. I mean, Don Jr. threw her under the bus oh, yesterday. Show. Yeah. Oh, God. Don Jr., who claimed attorney-client privilege in a, converse, for a conversation between he and his father, neither of whom have law degrees. Isn't this, privilege, isn't this a privilege, attorney-client privilege? Aren't we, like, you know, isn't this I, podcast attorney-client privilege? I just I keep thinking back, you know, um, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, well, he, where he's Bill S. Preston Esquire. He's mm-hmm. just given himself the, the title. The title, yeah, exactly. Like Don, Don, Don Jr. must be Don, you know, Donald J. Trump Jr. Esquire. Listen, in, I, appear in his mind. Se, I appear pro se from my, I appear pro se in life. <laughs> no one anything I say to anyone or anyone tells me is covered by attorney client privilege. I'm very pro se. That's why that's I give true of all of us. That's why I give you a dollar every time I see you. Before we finish, that's exactly that's precisely it. Oh man, this is I am I am I am perennially retained despite my so life. so impetus one might just be that he doesn't like doing this every six months because it basically means he's breaking the campaign promise that. Obama, Hillary, Romney, McCain, Gore, Bush, Kerry, all made. I mean, this is an ongoing campaign promise. Um, So that may be reason number one. Reason number two um, is it was a gift to Mike Pence because you can only imagine Mike Pence is not the happiest camper in the world right now. Probably not thrilled with this, with the Roy Moore backing. Um, Although you never know. I mean, Mike Pence could be the guy who actually came up with the talking point that, you know, uh, Jesus's mother was a 16 year old. Still, still arguably the hottest take in the history of hot takes. Yeah, it's, it, it really like, I mean, there, there are, there are a lot of things out of this hot take. Yeah. There are a lot of things out of this Roy Moore thing, including the Q poll that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, things I just want engraved into the side of the RNC. That's one of them. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, so it might be, it, you know, it might be a, you know, a gift to Mike Pence because he was evangelical and the evangelical community was really supportive of this, which also means it was a gift to the evangelical community, which is one of Trump's major bases for some unbeknownst reason. Um, 
or it could be that he his his actual base was getting restless over the fact that he hasn't followed through on a whole bunch of campaign promises, and this is a big one that they that he could toss to them. And, and what's he at thirty four percent approval rating right now? Something like that. Thirty something like that. Thirty two and thirty seven, depending. And as more and more members of his administration and potentially his family and his son in law are, are get get pinned up by Robert Mueller, um, he's going to need that base more and more and more. Um, so that, that, that could be one of the reasons to, to do all this. So that, that's the second primary question. What was the impetus to do it right now? Um, particularly because there was a lot of reporting back in May, the last time the waiver was signed, um, that Netanyahu actually pushed Trump to not sign the waiver, to, to, to sign the waiver, sorry. Netanyahu himself was actually pushing for Trump not to move the embassy. That, that was reported, obviously everybody denies it, it was based on a Fox News report and some other people were reporting on it, but I never put a whole lot of stake into it. Um, the third question, which is hugely important, is what, if anything, did the Israelis agree to do or not do to get, to get this? Um, and I think that's huge. I can't imagine that the most vaunted deal maker in the world, the art of the deal, Donald Trump, would have given away something for nothing particularly something this huge. I think it's important that we, that we get our heads around the possibility that that is exactly what happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, if this, man's business, if this man's history suggests anything, it's that actually he is the biggest sucker on the block by a country mile. Yeah. I mean, president Goodbrain's best words. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's entirely possible. My, my friend, uh, Yehuda Kurtzer, um, who's the head of the, uh, Shalom Hartman Institute, um, the David Hartman, the, sorry, the, yeah, Shalom Hartman Institute in, in, the U.S. and happens to be the son of the former ambassador, American ambassador to Israel, uh, had a great line. He said, um, "Quote: I know he's supposed to be good at business and smart at real estate, but Trump just traded beachfront property in Tel Aviv and a staggering cliffside resident in Chichi Herzliya. Herzliya is beautiful. Herzliya Pituach is beautiful. You know, uh, coast coastal enclave in, in Israel. The uh, um, ambassador's residence is there. It's really, really, really stunning. Um, so he traded that for a building that will be built in the in in Arnono, which is." not a particularly nice neighborhood in Jerusalem and David Freeman, who's the current ambassador to Israel, uh, his crappy apartment or Chavio, which is, you know, like any town USA almost. Um, so, you know, maybe Donald Trump isn't quite as good at the, at the business that as he, as, as he says he is. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that, that kind of sums up everything in Jerusalem. I mean, there, there are riots going on across the West bank and Gaza right now. Um, hopefully no one will get killed or too terribly injured. Um, and I imagine it'll, it, this will all calm down pretty quickly. This, you know, the Saudis will snap their fingers and things will calm down. And before you know it, there'll be talk of, you know, everybody getting around a table and disagreeing on a peace plan for the next six years. Sounds good. Yeah. I mean, what, a, what, a glory, what a glorious future we envision. Speaking of outstanding negotiations going on in the world. Yes. Speaking of complete hashes. Let's, complete hashes. Let, let's move north and discuss Brexit. I, hope Brexit, I know, I know, I know uh, gentle listeners are core of discovery that you have wanted nothing so much as to talk about Brexit and to talk about mismanagement in general. Um, and, and we are here. And to, speaking of mismanagement, let's talk about Theresa May. Yes, exactly. Speaking <laughs> of catastrophic, you know, honestly, like this, I will, you know, I will say this, I would never have thought it possible uh, that, that we could see that there would be a contender 
with the United States for uh, for tragic mismanagement of Western democracies right now. Uh, and, and yet, this is an absolute photo finish. I would be hard pressed to tell you who is governing their country worse right now. Uh, Donald, I feel like I feel like dumbest timeline. Britain doesn't really have the same ring to it. No, it loses something. And it, 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 yeah, well, also, I mean, they've, they've been around a lot longer. And, and have had a lot dumber times. times. I know, that's exactly yeah. right. You know, they've had a, you know, a few succession wars. Uh, but, I mean, you really do almost have to go back to Cromwell. Okay, <clears throat> rather than going back to Cromwell, let's I mean, try the whole and... creation of the Anglican Church. I mean, that's just keep this ludicrously dumb. <laughs> well, yeah. well, I mean, it, 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 it was and it wasn't. I have to understand. They were <laughs> They were all so, God, no. All right, we're not going to do this. All right, back okay. to Theresa May Jesus and her incompetence. Boy, that was, that was reason rocked on its throne for a second there. Okay, so this is the present state of uh, Brexit negotiations. Uh, just, I mean, a, uh, a trash can that has caught fire, been thrown in a dumpster, which has also caught fire, which has been, lit, which has been put on a garbage uh, barge, which, is all, which has also caught fire and is presently sinking into a Superfund sludge site. Like, it's a fucking disaster. Uh, I will say, so the part of this that I want to focus on beyond the just horrific incompetence, there are two things I want to bring up. First... Uh, David Davis is the minister uh, who is in charge of preparing Britain for uh, Brexit. He ran against David Cameron unsuccessfully for the Conservative Party leadership uh, in the late 2000s. He is back. He is in charge of, uh, get, as I said, getting uh, the government and Britain prepped for, um, for the reality of Brexit. Uh, several times over the last few months, David Davis has said there are all sorts of uh, impact assessments being conducted, which is to say uh, the government and its allies are uh, well on the way to understanding the effect of different Brexit scenarios on sectors of British business, of public life, of so forth, basically doing a little bit of scenario planning and prognostication. And he said, uh, you know, we have 58 uh, you know, highly detailed impact assessments in progress right now. We have 60 highly detailed, uh, you know, impact assessments in progress right now. He said we have, you know, and then there are more of them in progress and we have 58 that are done uh, that we can, you know, that will give us a sense of what is likely to happen. Recently, he was called upon to make those public. Um, there was actually a, 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 there was a, it took an act of parliament actually to, to rule that those things had to be made public, at which point uh, it was disclosed that uh, he, he did not have 58 uh, or 60 or more uh, impact assessments of the effect of, Briggs, of Brexit on the British economy and public life. In fact, he has none. Uh, you are correct. Uh, David Davis has been going around telling everyone that he has done all of his homework and in fact has done none of it. He narrowly escaped being held in contempt of parliament. Didn't Steve Mnuchin just do the same thing with uh, a tax, uh, some kind of tax analysis that he said was done? Treasury never did it. Yeah, it never happened. This is exactly right. This is exactly it. Like this is this is you know the special relationship continues in you know odious, uh, <laughs> you know, in, in intellectually and personally lazy, odious men lying about having done their homework. Uh, so that was a re- that was a really strong moment. Uh, so just so in case you were concerned that that Britain might not uh, that Britain might not be ready for uh, what was happening, not only is Britain not ready for Brexit, uh, the British government is not even ready to try and get ready. So this is incur- incredibly encouraging information uh, all around, and fortunately, it's not like the consequences aren't coming thick and fast already, uh, and and they're they are upon us even now with the negotiations that are occurring about the customs union in Brexit uh, in Brussels right now. 
Yeah. So, I mean, the Brussels stuff is obviously, I mean, that's kind of the heart of the whole thing, but the one thing that I keep hearing about and seeing and, and really am intrigued by, um, is the whole thing with Ireland and Brexit and the, the, the Northern Ireland, the, the border and taxes and all this kind of stuff. It just seems like if the other, if it's a, a trash can and a dumpster fire in a, in a bar on a barge, I think I missed a step there. Yeah, there was a, uh, there's a trash can, there's a garbage, there's a dumpster. And it, was there something else? Was there a garbage truck involved? There should have been. If if there, there yeah. If there wasn't. Yeah. It, it, it feels like the, the, the Irish thing is, uh, I mean, I hate to use the term, but almost just seems like the car bomb waiting to go off. <laughs> In a sense. Uh, I'm talking about Jameson and Guinness. I'm not talking about explosive things. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> This is oh man, I'm I'm I am deeply triggered by this. Okay, yeah, no, this is this is when I was referring to the earlier negotiations. That's yeah, you're you, you're absolutely right. It's the it's the Irish it's the Irish question, not that Irish question, <laughs> Irish question for once. Uh, yeah, Ireland, uh, uh, the Irish thing is a mess, and not for the usual reasons. Um, so here's the here's the problem. And I've, we've talked about this a little bit before, but it is now actually coming to pass. During the bad times, the troubles, uh, and you know, essentially thirty years of, of brutal internecine warfare uh, on the island of Ireland, the Irish border was one of the most heavily between the United Kingdom, uh, which would be the uh, which would be Northern Ireland, uh, the six counties of Northern Ireland, and the Republic of Ireland was one of the most heavily policed and fortified borders in the, in the Western world. It was, if you look at uh, security forces deployed a more militarized and fortified border than, uh, than the one in Berlin to give you a, give you a contact between East and West Berlin to give you some context there. Uh, that, that hard border, uh, is, uh, is, <laughs> has been done away with. Uh, I was in, I was living in Ireland, uh, in early, in the early two thousands, the border was already down. It was a soft border. There was free trade between, but the, the infrastructure of the hard border, some of it was still up and you could see, you know, so you could see some of the hard, some of the hard border left. And it was really, it was, I mean, it was, you could see how it would be, uh, I mean, you could see how it would be quite traumatizing if you wanted, if you wanted to view your country as, as one country that has a kind of, uh, that, or at least, uh, or at least sort of one, one nation, which is different from a state, uh, one, you know, one nation that has a, you know, similar, that has a, you know, sort of shared cultural destiny, uh, anyway, the hard border is a is a literal uh, and kind of a spiritual reminder of a much much worse time in Irish history, and there has one of the real questions from the begin after immediately after Brexit is what the hell will happen with the Irish border because the Republic of Ireland is part of the EU uh, and an enthusiastic uh, and uh, you know and, and very productive member of the European Union. The EU has been uh, very good to Ireland uh, in a lot of investment in Irish infrastructure came about as a result of EU uh, EU invest of direct EU investment and the ability to to borrow it. I mean, let's call it what it is. EU countries are able to borrow at the German rate. Uh, and that's been a made that's so the Irish a lot of uh, the modern Irish state and a lot of the Irish economy is is you know has been built uh, you know on some far sighted investment by the Irish government of course but but was certainly facilitated by EU membership. Uh, Apple Apple has a uh, uses lot of, Ireland as a lot of as software tax shore a lot of software companies a lot, lot of, of software some finance some pharmaceutical a lot of pharmaceutical a lot of pharmaceutical uh, it's a very I mean it's very much a it's you know I mean it's it is. 
it was it was and has become again a you know a pretty a pretty robust and vital economy built on built on you know built on white collar jobs intellectual property. Uh, the, the Irish went a little bit nuts and started selling each other's uh, started selling their houses and land to each other at wildly inflated prices. They had their own kind of housing bubble, an internal housing bubble that burst around the same time that everyone else's did. Yeah, similar uh, but, to what was going on in Iceland, but not quite as they, the end result wasn't nearly as bad. That's right. That's right. Um, and in, and anyway, the Irish state, the the you know the Republic of Ireland has been not a perfect, but a a, a reasonably robust economy uh, that was not hit quite as hard by the recession, and I believe has recovered a little bit faster than than some other ones. Uh, the same is not quite has not been true of Northern Ireland. Uh, economically, Northern Ireland has not done as well as the Republic. Uh, but one of the things that I think the sort of general agreement on both sides is, at, the absence of a hard border has been really good for both. Uh, it's been good for you know keeping a lid on tensions. It's enabled uh, Northern Ireland to, which again has its own governance issues. But the long and the short of it is right. This open border is really the big deal. This this open border is a giant deal, and the Northern Irish voted against Brexit. Fifty four percent of uh, of Northern Irish voted against Brexit. So it's eight, an eight point victory uh, for uh, for uh, for Remain in Northern Ireland. So, do you happen to remember what the number was in Scotland? Uh, it was more than that. I think. I think the Scots were even more against Brexit. Okay. Uh, so, so basically, the so England and Wales uh, voted for Brexit. Scotland and Northern Ireland voted against it. Yeah. Uh, so, what you know, what what does all of this mean? Uh, and Northumbria didn't. No, that's exactly right. Northum- <laughs> Northumbria and Wessex uh, were on the fence. Uh, and and now it's all the War of the Roses again. No, it's so <laughs> exactly. Lancashire and Yorkshire had a slight difference of opinion for the first time in history, and it's all gone sideways. Come to taking ship for timely accounts and jokes and hilarity of three thousand years of war and battles across <laughs> that's, the world. That's, that's exactly. This is a history podcast. This is an obscure history podcast. All right, <laughs> where am I going with all of this? Uh, the Irish question has been a big question. Uh, you've got. And 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 what the hell to do about this is is has has been kind of on the back burner. It got to the front burner this week when, as part of the negotiations over Brexit, uh, the May government accepted a concession, or at least seemed ready to accept a concession within their negotiations with the EU that would keep Northern Ireland in the EU Customs Union, uh, which is an, which seems like a small bureaucratic point, but the but it is it is in fact a major one because it allows for the open border, the soft border of the Republic of Ireland, if. Northern Ireland remains in the EU Customs Union, there is no need for a hard border. This seems fine. It would be an exemption that would only be true for Northern Ireland, but this was amenable, I believe, to the Republic of Ireland. It was amenable to the EU. It was amenable to the Conservative Party under Theresa May. It was not, however, amenable to the Democratic Unionist Party. Uh, the Democratic Unionist Party is, we've talked about them before. Uh, they are a, I mean, let's call them what they are. They're a quasi-medieval uh, set of these were the uh, this, these, these were conservative the, Ulster uh, unionists. Yeah, uh, these are the savvy group of motivated personnel who uh, cr- basically helped May create the government. Correct. There are yeah. This is a small uh, a, a small but very important uh, political party from Northern Ireland. Uh, they are extremely conservative. They are extremely unionist, uh, and they are and they have and they have said they will absolutely oppose. Uh, they are. They have said they will absolutely oppose uh, any deal uh, that where Northern Ireland is treated differently from the rest of the UK. The reason this matters. Normally, people generally don't pay that much attention to what the DUP says, and that's a good thing. But the reason it matters is Theresa May's entire government depends on the votes of the DUP, and there's only there's only eight of them. It's like but, the Bizarro Freedom Caucus, right? This is exactly it. The D, she depends on them in order to be able to form a government. 
her majority in the House of Parliament in the House of Commons is made up of the Conservative Party and the DUP. It's called a supply and confidence arrangement, where uh, the DUP will do things like help her pass a budget. Uh, if someone were to bring a no confidence vote in the government, they would vote for her, enable the Conservatives to stick around. So this is where we so the, where we things stand at present. The Republic of Ireland has said that they will veto any deal that leads to a hard border. Um, there you know, and and the EU is in agreement with is is in agreement with them. So the EU is acting as their mouthpiece in this. But the Republic of Ireland has said this. The um, the Conservative government, uh, the Conservative Party has said they will try and they are looking for a solution that will allow this. They actually I don't think are opposed to it. They clearly are not. The DUP has has absolutely said they will not stand for anything of the sort. This is and and right and we're expecting a new proposal at any minute. Uh, but right now, it looks like the DUP are going to hold their breath until their faces turn blue. Uh, the potential outcome of all of this is uh, a collapse of Brexit negotiations, which will make things worse. Uh, the DUP could leave the coalition, and then we would have another general election in Britain. Uh, this is a situation that is not going to get uh, that is not getting uh, any better. I could get worse before it gets better, and. In, into all of this accurately, Wade's just want to pass on this quote from uh, Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, who has described the May government as dissembling, mendacious, and totally and utterly incompetent in its pursuit of, uh, of Brexit. Uh, you know, I mean, Nicola Sturgeon calls him as she sees him, uh, and, she, and, and she has revived the possibility of Scottish independence as well, which had gone rather, rather quiet. I suspect that will stay quiet. Uh, but anyway, it is, it is very possible that this issue that the May government just sort of seemed to casually assume would go away, the Irish border question, is now quite possibly threatening the existence of her government. So uh, one final question on this and b- b- before we move on, and you may not know the answers to this, because I, I certainly don't. I don't know the inner machinations of EU or the negotiations. If the c- negotiations collapse, Britain's just out and gets nothing for it, and That's which right. is the worst case scenario almost globally, because all of the, the financial center that London is will just evaporate. What you've what you've just yeah that's exactly right. What you've just uh, what you've just uh, described is referred to as the hard, as a hard Brexit. Hard, yeah, yeah, as the hard Brexit, and it and 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 this is exactly right. If there is no negotiation, so Britain's out in 2019, one way or the other. Like this, right. this is happening. Right. And if Britain crashes out, which is to say, if there isn't some kind of arrangement afterward, uh, there'll be a number of consequences to this. Uh, it, it is just, it's not clear what will happen to uh, British finance. There's a, there's a good chance that a bunch of it will relocate probably to Frankfurt. Uh, seems some to a Paris, lot are, already is. A lot of them already are. Uh, and, and, you could see, and you could see why they would be doing it now. I mean, nothing that the May government has done in government, especially doing big things in government, 18 months is, n- is no time at all. Yeah. But like 18 months in government terms, uh, particularly for big and complex operations, is, 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 is effectively tomorrow. And again, not only is there no plan, but based on the the alarming casualness with which the May government has pursued negotiations around things like Ireland, I mean, they clearly had just not. They clearly had just. It's, it's improbable as it sounds. It looks like they just didn't factor the DUP into their thinking at all. It's the only possible explanation for how we could have gotten to this, which is, I think, we would all agree, a massive oversight. And this has been that, and you know, David Davis is lying about their having done any homework. They clearly have no idea how Brexit's going to affect anything. Has done has not done anything to assure essentially any international party that Britain is a good bet for the future. So there are financial institutions already leaving. Yeah. 
there and the, the bigger concern would be there maybe there are you know manufacturing concerns that are already sta- uh, upping sticks. That's a much bigger worry, I would argue, than banks leaving. Yeah, uh, when people who actually make things start leaving your country. Uh, so this and 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 you know I'll give you one more. I mean I could obviously go on about the consequences of this at, at, at enormous length, and we could turn this into a Brexit podcast. But I will just say one more thing. To give you one, just one small example of this, and, and, and I think I may have alluded to this on this podcast before, but if you want to have, for example, an, the equivalent of an FDA, right? Britain uses the European equivalent of the F, the European Union equivalent of the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. If Britain wants to, if Britain crashes out and wants to set up its own FDA, the work on that would have needed to have begun in about 2015. Yeah. So Britain, unless they're able to come up with some kind of agreement in 2019, all of their regulatory structure and a bunch of their legitimate functions are going to fall completely the hell apart. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it yeah. Uh, it, the way that May's government has approached this all over. And you, we are, we, one of the things that we try to do on the podcast is when we talk about other countries and you know what we know about Israel or, or Great Britain is try to find some level of equivalency to the U S. And if you look at sort of the crash and burn of the repeal of Obamacare and how the Trump administration and the Republicans came in with no, having done no homework, which mm-hmm. we have repeatedly said was just shocking that there wasn't a plan in a drawer that was backed by everybody that was agreed to by the insurance companies and everybody else was, you know, I mean, not even incompetence. It was, it was total dereliction of duty at, at some level. Um, it seems very similar to, to, to what's going on, but on a much smaller scale. Sure. I mean, this would be, you're right. I mean, there is in the level of preparation, in the lack of preparation, the way that uh, the Trump administration and the Republican leadership pursued repeal of Obamacare is very similar to the way that that uh, that uh, the conservatives have pursued Brexit and then pursued the fallout from Brexit. The difference, would, but in order for it to have been equivalent, the Republican Party would have a had to have passed a repeal of Obamacare and b burned down every hospital in the country. Yeah, I mean, it's basically like comparing a splinter to open heart surgery. Yeah, it's a it is a monumental catastrophe. And this is actually this is why I would say that right now in the race to the bottom, the Brits are in the lead. Yeah, yeah. So maybe dumbest timeline Britain is. We got. There's got to be something better. Yeah. yeah. Dumbest timeline. Something. Dumbest timeline. Albion. Well, we'll get there. <laughs> um, all right. So, Frank, let's uh, before we close out, let's uh, revisit our favorite sports league. Oh yeah. Yes. That we have uh, very good things to say. You will be pleased to know, dear listeners, uh, the future of the NFL is yet bright. Uh, they have retained the shining light, the beacon of leadership that is Roger Goodell. He has signed a new contract. Uh, for a base salary of $20 million a year uh, with incentives that would be about $40 million a year, which is what he was making before. The difference is now he has to be paid. Uh, now now a large now half of his salary is, is dependent upon incentives, which the owners have to approve, which they almost certainly will. When do the TV contracts start expiring? The next... Over the next four years? Collective bargaining agreement is, two th- is 2021, I believe. Uh, okay. And that, which I believe, which I think may be dependent upon TV contracts or maybe rel- maybe related to TV contracts. Right. I, 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 the TV I don't contract, remember what you know, the ESPN or ABC yeah. or CBS, MC, the, I don't remember when those were signed through, but I think that, I don't, I don't know. I don't even want to speculate because no. I have no idea. Yeah. For our listeners, the reason this is relevant is, and this is not going to come as a surprise, the NFL makes most of its money from TV contracts. And then every... And then there is a collective bargaining agreement between the players and the owners to figure out how the how how the league's collective revenues, again, almost exclusively TV con, I mean, you know, you know, the lion's share of which come from TV contracts. Uh, there's a there's a, a, a collective bargaining agreement to figure out how that is split up. Right. So, 
and and basically the reason this is relevant, uh, we've talked about the NFL as a kind of cultural signifier before. Uh, I, I absolutely love that this has happened because after all of the shit that has happened with the NFL, I mean, this is a league that has not had good news or a good headline in a long time. And after and, all of that, and a general kind of sense that Goodell is responsible for this, that he has mismanaged this whole thing. Uh, you know, there. I mean, the, the league's leaders have lined up to do exactly well, what we want is more of the same. You know what? Let's. You know, this guy is crashing this bus in, bus into the ditch. Let's. You know, let's let him get it done. Let's get him right down to the bottom of this goddamn thing, and then we'll figure out what to do. Yeah, and if people wanted any reason to think that Donald Trump won't be reelected in 2020. There you go. Yeah, I mean, this is yeah. All 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 asinine things are possible in this dumbest timeline, America. And I wanted to use this as an opportunity to bring up a concept that I think is incredibly relevant. I'm surprised I haven't talked about it more on the show. The Vikings having a good season. The Vikings. I I was not emotionally or intellectually ready for that. Actually, if you really want any indication of dumbest timeline, America, it's the fact that the Minnesota Vikings are ten and two. Like this is just a this is a crime. Yeah. Uh, and and it should never have been permitted. And I say this as a devout fan. It's it's an abomination, and it cannot be it cannot be allowed. Well, you know no. the connection between uh, Trump and the Vikings, right? No. Yeah, so the Wilfs family that owns the oh, Vikings yeah. sure. um, and the Kushner family, um, um, both, sur- uh, both uh, patriarchs survived the Holocaust and, and were, were very friendly with one another in Jersey for, for years and years and years and years. Really? Yeah. yeah but damn, you know, that doesn't surprise me, especially since the Wilfs are famous for, at least Ziggy Wilf, the owner of the Vikings, is famous for having stiffed a large number of people on contracts yeah, uh, and, right. and defrauded a couple of business partners. So I, I'm, I'm not making any of that up. That's a matter of public record. Um, so, yeah, that sounds, that, that sounds like they're peas in a pod. So <laughs> we bring up this because the NFL is, in some respects, a good example of a number of cultural effects. We've talked about this in the context of Colin Kaepernick before. Uh, but this, what I, I wanted to talk about a concept that, again, I'm a little surprised hasn't popped up already. There is a book and a concept that is derived, that is sort of sprung up from the book uh, called The Gray Rhino. It was written by uh, Michelle Wooker, uh, who uh, was for a long time at the World Policy Institute. She was the Chicago Council for a while. Uh, the the gray rhino. She wrote that as a I wouldn't say a direct response, but it was heavily influenced by the way people were talking about the about the Great Recession. People kept talking about a black swan event. So the idea, for those who may not be familiar with it, a black swan event is an unexpected and unprecedented event, and the uh, but that is nonetheless possible. So when someone is asked, could a th- could you know could this thing happen? Could a black swan be born? The general answer is, well, no. I mean, we've, we've only, like, the idea is, well, no, we've only ever seen white swans before. Well, just because you've only ever seen white swans before doesn't mean a black swan couldn't occur. Just because a thing is unprecedented doesn't mean it's impossible. That's sort of the gist. And somewhere out there, there are game theorists and economists who are accusing me of being reductive, and they are correct. Uh, but that's the general theory of the black swan event. Just because something is unprecedented doesn't mean it can't happen. So a black swan event is an unprecedented event and, and unexpected. And, uh, and, and, and Michelle Walker's point is a lot of the things that go wrong in the world and with institutions that we call black swans aren't black swans at all. They're gray rhinos. They're things that we actually saw coming a long way away and just refused to deal with. And the book goes into how we, how, you know, how institutions and how leaders hide from gray rhinos, why they hide from gray rhinos. A lot of the great recession was gray rhino stuff. Big, there were signals that this was coming all along and we just refused to acknowledge them. There is there are a few better examples of a gray rhino than the owners of a league approving a new contract for a commissioner who has presided over and is actively presiding over a decline in revenue, 
uh, a number of social crises uh, ranging from, you know, on, on you know, ranging from the sort of institutionalized tolerance of misogyny and domestic abuse uh, up to, you know, uh, you know, up to a, a all but explicit racism as, a, as an artifact of league-wide or team-wide policy. Uh, and that league, and that league is also, as that league suffers from or faces what can only be described as an existential threat uh, in the form of, of growing concern over the you know over the the, the effect that head injuries have on players uh, that has already precipitated a decline in youth participation. So basically, the league has both major I don't even want to call them PR challenges because they're moral challenges uh, you know on on misogyny and race, uh, but they are they have a, a public relations component. Certainly, they're facing major image problems and moral challenges at the same time that they face a legitimate existential threat, and these are manifesting in genuinely declining, in genuinely declining ratings. And when we say declining ratings, more, the same number of people are actually watching the NFL, but they are watching the games. They're what the you know, aggregate percentage-wise, the NFL's rate is going down. This is may not even be the NFL's fault. This is true for most tele. This is true for most scheduled uh, television, actually. Uh, but more, the same number of people are watching games, but they're watching for shorter periods. They're not sticking around for the entire game. And some of it is the quality of the game and so forth. So this is a long and complex question. These are serious threats to the league. And the way that the league has responded is to hire a guy who has handled these about to rehire a guy who has handled these about as badly as possible. This is a classic example of a gray rhino. 10 years from now, the NFL is going to be still, I suspect a very financially successful and lucrative league. Uh, but they are, it is not going to be the juggernaut that it is. It will continue to face these problems. And we'll look back at this moment as the one when the NFL's owners decided, eh, you know what? Screw it. Yeah. I mean, anybody who watched uh, Goodell's press conference um, after the, during the Ray Rice thing, um, anybody who would have watched that and, and considered him to be a successful leader or even a competent leader uh, would have been, you know, th- those notions would have been lost quite quickly during that press conference. Yeah. This yeah, is pro- yeah. three years ago. Yeah, you'd be fooling yourself if you thought that. And and the and the whole point of this is, and this is again, this is why this this particular rhino is is you know large and gray and and in plain sight to everyone. The league ownership doesn't need doesn't want a a genuine leader. They don't want someone with ideas, someone who's going to come in and change things. They are looking for a patsy. Um, right. They are looking for some because they're you know the the current incentives of the league and and I, I don't want to get into this in great detail because this is not an NFL podcast thank God, but the way that the leagues are incentivized, the way the teams make money, all of this suggests that actually like the quality of the product on the field doesn't have that much effect right now on how the league makes money. I think it will in the long term, uh, and as a result, like they just need someone who's going to keep this thing. You know, they're just going to keep the train on the tracks, not upset any of them, certainly not ask the kind of big questions that would require that they do any work or demonstrate any forward thinking desire or any any forward thinking on any subject whatsoever. And does it surprise you that a great number of the uh, owners in the NFL are heavy Republican donors? The league, the NFL had more donors who have participated in Republican politics than any of the other sports leagues, yeah. usually in the form of donations to the inaugural committee of Donald Trump. Yeah, you know, speaking of the idea that this is just a group that's looking for a patsy, uh, you know, every now and again this peaks up. But uh, Condoleezza Rice, the former National Security Advisor and Secretary of State, has repeatedly, on the record, said that her dream job is to be the uh, Commissioner of the NFL. Yes, and a um, more pragmatic thinking and uh, um, better strategically planning league would leap at the opportunity to hire her to do that, uh, both as, um, 
you know, the visuals of having an African-American woman um, be the commissioner of, of the first female commissioner of a league. Um, and also, you know, as a secretary of state, you presume that she's not a, we know she's not a stupid person. Um, and, you know, uh, Frank, I think you have an opinion on this, but, yeah. you know, it basically boils down to it'll never happen because of the misogynistic and racist reasons that we've discussed. Plus the idea that you don't, you know, the last thing that these old white men in Sadiq Khan want is a uh, uh, African-American woman telling them what to do. Two points on this. First, Sadiq Khan is the mayor of London. Uh, uh, I mean, the other, the Jaguars. Yeah, yeah. God damn uh, it. That almost yeah. worked. <laughs> that was, you were so, they were so close. Oh man, it's a tough landing to take. Um, yeah, there's, you know, so I will say this, like there is a legitimate case to be made uh, for Condoleezza Rice to be commissioner of the NFL in that she would be the ideal person uh, to uh, put together a trumped up dossier to lead the NFL to war in Iran. Uh, you know, but, but, but look, your point is well made, right? Like I mean, leaving aside the borderline war criminal question, uh, I mean, she would never be hired, I think, partly because the league owners want someone who looks like them, uh, and, and that means that means a white dude. That means a, you know, a, a very comfortably wealthy, pasty white dude. Uh, and also, you know, whatever else may be said of her, and I, I, you can tell I have a lot more things to say, uh, whatever else may be said of her, she would have ideas. I think there's a very real possibility that she would have ideas uh, on how to change the league. And and this is, I guess, what I was getting at. The league has... There- uncomfortable questions the league has to face. CTE yeah. is the biggest one, but it's not the only one. These are really uncomfortable questions that I suspect will fundamentally alter the way that the game is played down the line. And these guys, they don't want anyone who's going to force them to ask uncomfortable questions. And that's been Goodell's genius is he has blundered from one cartoonish act of buffoonery to another, but he never asks them to think about difficult questions. And, yeah, I mean, and this is, and that's that's why this is the grayest of possible rhinos. They need a, the NFL needs a fix before things get worse, and instead they are just doubling down on the guy who is actually exacerbating the problem. Yeah, I mean, he he. How many times did he pick piss off uh, Bob Kraft over the years? And Bob Kraft, and then Jerry Jones came out and said we shouldn't rehire him. Those are two of the most prominent owners in the league, and yet he got rehired. Sure. Yeah, and we know that it was not a unanimous vote. It's the first time it hasn't been a unanimous vote, um, and and it, and we don't know if that was one owner. It was certainly not not Jerry Jones, the good old Double J. Uh, we know whatever else may be said of Jerry Jones, and holy cow, is there a lot to say about that guy? Uh, he is done with Commissioner Goodell. Incidentally, not because Commissioner Goodell has screwed up in any of the myriad ways or for any of the legitimate social interests, but because he's resentful of the way that Goodell has d- uh, disciplined his uh, star tailback Ezekiel Elliott. So, I mean, this, this is, look, the, the, the top line here is these are a bunch of people who legitimately deserve each other, but it is a really good example of the way that, it, it is as good an example of a gray rhino as I have ever seen. I mean, they are all going to hell their own way and they're all doing it together. Yep. All right, folks, uh, with that, uh, we have really uh, quadrupled down on the dumbest timeline America concept uh, where a, an incompetent leader can be re-signed for $200 million. Really just shows you that, uh, you know, when you have the crown prince of the U.S., Jared Kushner, who has now for the 37th time revised his SF-86 uh, disclosure document um, and yet still is in the White House. Um, only in dumbest timeline America, kids. Um, but we want to thank you all for joining us. Uh, please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. And like I said, you really do want to subscribe because we have uh, got a good slate of guests over the next couple of weeks. Follow us on Twitter at, at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in philology. And check out the new Facebook page. It's not so new, but we're trying to get better at posting things. Um, and with that, Frank, where are we headed this week? 
This week, we take to the high seas more broadly uh, as the result of uh, another uh, tragic policy change uh, within the United States of America. Uh, fairly recently, the United States Navy changed a policy for training its sailors, uh, which is that it used to be that, uh, that, that American sailors uh, were uh, tear gassed once every three years as part of their training. After a number of objections, I can't imagine why, uh, that has been changed to, uh, uh, to a requirement that sailors only be tear gassed once. So you only have to be tear gassed once if you're an American sailor. You know, this, this is troubling. This is worrying. Uh, we are deeply concerned here at Taking Ship about the ungassed, the, un, you know, the unmaced sailors, of not just the American Navy, but, but other navies. Other navies don't have any requirement that sailors be tear gassed at all. And this strikes me as a major omission. So we here at Taking Ship you know, ever ever minded toward public service, ever willing to put ourselves at risk, and you know, to put our you know our you know our lives, our treasure, and our sacred honor, uh, uh, you know, at, at stake uh, for a worthy aim. Uh, take ship now, uh, armed with an enormous amount of mace and tear gas, uh, to just to mace every sailor, every jolly tar we can get our hands on, uh, is going to be maced. We think this is going to go really well. We think there is, you know, is there a possibility that we will end up getting the hell kicked out of us and waking up in a naval brig? Yes, there is. Is there an even greater possibility that we will simply be identified as pirates, you know, blown out of the water and left to sink into the briny deep? Almost certainly. But this is a risk we are prepared to run uh, for the opportunity, you know, in the in the service of uh, macing a few uh, of macing a few innocent sailors for their own good. Uh, this is this is you know the heroism that you can come to expect from us. So we take now to the high seas, in uh, armed with mace and in search of the jolliest tars we can find. Take care, everybody. <laughs>